Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. I'm Emran Hughes, editor of Insurance Post, and today I'm joined by LexisNexis Risk Solutions' Martin Matthews, Aston Lark's Peter Blanc, and Jenston Group's Alistair Hardy to talk about how data should drive the merger and acquisition blueprint for insurers. Today on the Insurance Post podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by Martin Matthews, Vice President of Personal Commercial Lines at LexisNexis Risk Solutions, Peter Blanc, Chief Executive of Laston Lark and Executive Chair of Howden, and Alastair Hardy, Group CEO of Jenston Group. They're going to share their views of how, on how important data can be when purchasing an insurance business. Hi, Martin, Peter and Alastair. Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. Hi, Emma. Hi, Hi Emma. So, um, Alistair, if I start with you, what's been driving M&A activity at the start of this year? Well, I think it's an interesting question, Emma. I think it's, you look at it from a supply and a demand perspective. So on the supply perspective, there's a lot of brokers out there who have seen what's happened in the market over the last year or two and recognise where price is at. But also some of the, the changing regulation and the, the, the changing difficulties in running a business in the, the sort of general economic environment we've had for the last two years, I think has, has pushed a lot of brokers to consider consider selling their business. Peter, would you agree that's what's going on at the moment? Yeah, undoubtedly. It's the usual demographic challenge that there are still lots of brokers being run by guys. It is mainly guys, unfortunately, in their late 50s and early 60s. Um, But also there's, there's quite a flush of brokers who have just stopped growing and they're struggling to work out how to grow and they're struggling to grow without investment. So there are quite a few buyers out there that are looking to buy brokers in order to help them grow. Martin, is that something you're seeing as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. If I think about the conversations that I have with, across uh, the broker base of our, our customers, it, it's exactly that. It's how do I grow at scale? Um, and the recent regulatory environment has, you know, has made that more challenging, uh, and therefore that makes mergers and acquisitions sort of uh, inevitable. Mm. I mean, the, the pace of M&A activity seems as busy as ever at the start of this year. Um, Peter, do you expect that will continue into the latter half of 2023? I think it will continue in the short term. Um, it's going to be interesting to see quite what happens when lots of buyers' debt facilities come up for renewal. So I think it's, a, um, it's no doubt at all that the price of debt has increased exponentially. For a lot of buyers, they will have found that their debt has gone up by um, as much as 50% in terms of interest costs over the course of the last year. But as always, there's a bit of a lag with that as an indicator because people take out acquisition finance facilities and there are non-utilisation fees attached to those. So they kind of have to spend them. And it's still at the moment better for them to spend rather than to sit on their hands. But once they've exhausted the current facilities, it'd be really interesting to see whether they're actually able to reload successfully and go again. Martin, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, look, you don't have to scratch too far beneath the surface to see how, how vibrant um, this is at the moment. If I think about the number of conversations we're having with organisations looking for support um, in how they can you know, more effectively acquire books, then, then yes, uh, I'd expect it to continue in the short term. But I, I think Peter makes a great point about the, the longer term outlook. Alistair, would you agree with the longer term outlook from Peter? Yeah, certainly at Jenston, the, the short term pipeline is as healthy as it's ever been. The longer term, I, I, I do agree with Peter up to a point. But yeah, the, the, we're a creative bunch out there, and I'm sure we'll find ways of financing what we want to do if we're really committed to it. I mean, there's a lot of talk about how, what does it take to basically achieve a successful uh, merger and acquisition. Um, Martin, what would you, how, what role do you feel an uh, M&A blueprint can have in terms of addressing where, why, and how a company will undertake an acquisition? 
Yeah, well, I think I've, I've sat on all sides of this. So I've been part of, you know, acquiring companies. Um, I've been acquired um, and I've also sat in the middle as a sort of interested third party trying to help both sides of that, that debate. Um, I think it's incredibly important that, that you set out a blueprint that allows you to take perhaps the um, emotional side um, out of a out of a purchase because um, too many times we've seen people say wouldn't it be great if oh this is great looks great it's good for my CV whatever those sort of emotional or, or sort of ego uh, factors are in play as well so by putting the right sort of financial rigor um, and truly understanding where you're trying to get to as an organization and why you know an acquisition is a strategic fit then you know you can go some way towards making sure that's a success but you know it's, it's by no means an easy thing. And Peter what's been your experience with those kind of blueprints? Well, I guess what you have to say is, well, if without a blueprint, all that happens is you end up buying things reactively. And of course, you can buy things reactively and then um, a few years down the line, make a good story and pretend that you planned it all along and it was all, it was all part of your mastery. But, um, but the reality is without a blueprint, you will just buy random businesses. So you kind of have to decide, look, what are you going to be? Are you going to be a broker? Are you going to be an MGA? Are you going to be multifaceted? Do you want to just be UK only or do you truly want to be international? If you're going to be international, have you got a team that can do it? So you've really got to be honest with yourself about what type of businesses you want to buy and then lay out how you're going to go about buying them and then set about buying them. Alistair, would you agree that, you know, the, that transparency in the blueprint is essential? And also, how can the blueprint be used to set clear boundary conditions as well? Yeah, I think, I think the key with the blueprint is obviously you have to have one, but the key is sticking to it. And it's very easy in a very competitive marketplace. You know, there's a lot of businesses out there all fighting over the same, same potential assets. It's very easy to compromise your blueprint. So for me, sticking to those boundary conditions, sticking to the blueprint that you've laid out and having that discipline in the business is absolutely critical. Martin, how have you seen them used to set out boundary conditions? Well, I, th- I think the um, the point Alistair makes there is, is really important. It's very, it, it's difficult to say no. You know, it's actually one of the most difficult things to do of all when, uh, you know, sometimes everything about you is screaming to just carry on, even though um, an acquisition or a merger might, might fall outside of the blueprint and the financial metrics that you've set yourself. You know, the brave thing to do is walk away and say no. So um, I've seen you know, numerous examples where, you know, the easy thing to do would be carry on, carry on with the acquisition. And as Peter quite rightly said, further down the line, fit it to your, your strategy. But actually just, just using that blueprint to say no can quite often be the most difficult, but the most effective thing to do. Mm. It's so much easier to say yes than it is to say no, isn't it? And that's why these blueprints can be essential. Um, obviously, this industry is very much one that's driven by data, but what data can be used to help insurers get the insights they need to personalise products and services, improve operations, make faster and more strategic business decisions, and you know drive more value across the insurance value chain when they are engaged in M&A activity. Peter, what's your views on that? Well, I guess, look, from a broker's perspective, you know, we, um, the data is very much secondary. The first and foremost is, look, what's the culture of the business we're buying? You know, what do they want to achieve? What do they stand for? What's their reputation in the market? And if, if we've got a cultural fit and we've got a broad outline of how we think this business will fit with us, that's when we start hunting for the data. And then the data just serves to to actually work out how much we can pay for the business, what the upside is going to be, and what's the best way of structuring it. So, so to me, the data is absolutely secondary to the the most important thing, which is is there a cultural fit? 
Alistair, would you agree data is secondary to the cultural fit? I, I, for once, I absolutely agree with Peter on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think there's a secondary piece, which is very much how we try to run our business, which is that, that the data gives you real insight into the client, and mm. then that allows you to go to the market, whether it be your in-house capabilities or external providers, and, and demand bespoke products that match the specialist needs of those clients. And without the data, you cannot do that. And that's that's how broking will be sustainable long term because the need for that specialist advice will never be undermined by for example digital channels or or more generalist brokers. Martin how do you feel data can help in the M&A activity? Um, so I, I mean I, I agree with um, what my, my colleagues on, on the panel just said but actually I'm going to disagree slightly in the sense that I think data can play perhaps a more leading role in, in helping avoid um, sort of buyer's remorse if you like so are you truly buying what you think you're buying and I think data can help with that decision making particularly if you pull the use of that data further forward in the acquisition process um, perhaps as opposed to using it after uh, an acquisition has occurred so by that I just mean can you use data perhaps more intelligently to better assess the business that you buy not not necessarily just about the price that you pay but about the book of business that you're buying and the customer's and I just think by moving that further forward, there's an opportunity there to, to make the data work for you. So, Martin, how much further forward would you recommend moving it in the process in terms of it? Is it should it be the first thing that people engaged in this activity look at? No, I think Peter makes a great point. The culture of a business and what is the business that you're buying is incredibly important. But um, what, I, what I mean by moving this forward is perhaps there's an opportunity to um, work with third-party organisations to say, actually, what can you tell me about the business that I'm buying that I might not know and I might not be able to ascertain from the data that I, I can get from that company? So in personal lines, that might just be a much closer look at that, that customer base. Um, you use technology to understand, actually, am I already on risk with that individual and what's my experience been before? And all of those factors can just help influence um, the, the price that's paid for the business, but also the strategic fit as well. So just engaging much more early in that conversation, I believe, can, can bear fruit. And I mean, you often hear about data silos within an individual company, but when it comes to M&As, how important is it to break down data silos across different businesses? Peter, is that proven a challenge in the past? Yeah, I think we're, um, I mean, Martin makes very good points and particularly um, when you're buying personal lines brokers, the data is incredibly important. Um, you know, we've spent a lot of time buying commercial brokers and with those it's, it's interesting that depending on which computer system they use, brokers have either got fantastic data or in sometimes pretty woeful data and we have to go really digging quite hard to actually get to the answers that we want. But certainly in the personal lines arena, having full data about the customer base and the demographics and our A-plan business, you know, they, they spend a great deal of time on every acquisition making sure that they're, they're going to be able to offer competitive products and services to the customers going forward and for that a full data set is absolutely vital. Alistair, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, we can't do what we're all trying to do without the right data. Uh, in our experience, we tend to, to try and focus on the slightly larger brokers. It's probably been less of an issue in the past, but you know, increasingly as, we're, as we move forward and widen our appetite a little bit, I suspect that's more of a challenge. I mean, as Peter touched on there, I mean, data can vary quite um, significantly across different businesses in the industry. Martin, what would you say were the proper procedures for kind of consolidating data before before the merger, or is it simply something that is it, post-merger? It, it can sit at any stage of that cycle. I mean, it's a really good. We, we all know that data erodes over time. That that's just um, that's inevitable, um, and of course, that does mean that you know 
purchasing an established business might come with a set of challenges that come with with data that that has eroded over time. Um, so I, I just believe that actually by by moving forward the process of cleansing um, the data, perhaps taking a, a fresh look or an individual look. Um, will really bring to life that portfolio, whether that be commercial or, or personal lines. Um, you know, we, we've we've uh, undertaken projects with with customers who've looked to acquire a book and found that you know up to five percent of those customers, they already exist. You know, they're already there. You already have that individual as a customer, but perhaps a name has changed, an address has changed. So, you know, until you can solve for some of those issues, it really doesn't bring to life um, what you are actually. Uh, acquiring so I, I you know I'm a, I'm a data guy you would expect me to say these things of course but um the, the, the truth is bringing, bringing forward much of that activity just just will help you make better decisions and I guess that's what data's there to do really Peter what, what procedures have worked for you as a business when it comes to consolidating data I mean fortunately we've we we now employ a whole team of data people who um who help us on that journey um and they come up with some amazing insights and across Howden and Aston Lark you know we've got a, um, a program called I think it's called Accelerator, which is, enables us to look into the grocery premiums that we place across the market and gives us incredible insight into where the opportunities are. So, yeah, I think that's one of the advantages of scale that you actually can afford to take on these teams because they are expensive, unfortunately, Martin. I'm looking at you. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining there's, a, there's some sort of fairly serious wage roll around this table. Alistair, would you agree? Is there some serious wages to be earned for consolidating data? Uh, I, I think there certainly are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We won't ask Martin. <laughs> not, not enough. Not there enough. You go, that's yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, with um, the, the expertise on our panel today, I'd be remiss for not asking for firms who are currently looking for a buyer. What is your? What are your top tips to achieving a successful deal in 2023? Alistair, I'll start with you. Well, what should ab- they be doing? Absolutely coming and talking to Jenston. <laughs> Outrageous. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, um, and I, I'm sure Peter will agree with this, it's be realistic about what your business is worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of people out there who have heard numbers, they've heard rumours, they've got advisors whispering in their ear, and ultimately none of us are going to pay more than a business is, is truly worth based on data. Uh, so I think that that's the first step. And the, sec- the second step is make sure your business is prepped for sale. Because t- too often we find businesses that are desperate to sell, we're very keen to buy them. And then there's months of work to do just because either the data is not available or, the, or the, the, the processes in the business just aren't robust enough to allow us to move forward quickly. And when you say prepped, what level of preparation are you looking for? Well, I'm, I'm looking for people to understand, and maybe this is an unreasonable ask, but I'm looking for people to understand what would a buyer want to do and know about your business before we engage with you. And if we, if we have to tell somebody what the answer to that question is, then inevitably you've got months of work for them to do to get to that point before, before we can realistically proceed. Peter, um, for firms looking for a buyer, what would be your top tip? Well, I absolutely echo everything Alistair said. I mean, having having firms that are reasonably prepped and you know, not to the nth degree, but just having you know, um, their finger on basic financial data, being able to actually provide financial reports quite easily, being able to provide all the information that any reasonable buyer would want, um, and doing it in a relatively timely way, I think is incredibly important. Being realistic, but also understanding the most important thing to my mind is actually thinking about look what do you really really want long term because once the check has cleared once that money's hit the bank account and uh, um, and you you bought a few toys 
then you've still got to live with that decision for years and years to come and your staff have got to live with that decision for donkey's years to come. So do you want to have tomatoes thrown at you in your town when you turn up four or five years later having sold to the wrong person or do you actually want to be patted on the back for having made a fantastic decision and thinking long and hard about the long-term future and not just making a decision based on... <laughs> it's funny, you know, we sell insurance all the time and we're constantly telling our clients, for goodness sake, it's not just all about the premium. You've really got to think about what the right answer is. You know, never more true than when you're selling a business. It's got to be truly the right answer. Don't be taken in by promises and don't just be taken in by the price. And Martin, what would you be recommending someone who's looking to make have a successful deal this year? Yeah, I think um, if I put my my lens on this, so we we are um, acquisitive, looking at more more in the insure tech space, I guess, rather than acquiring perhaps you know brokers or more established businesses, um, ones that can complement sort of data analytics kind of strategies. But it's it's very difficult, really, when you're in my position to to really scratch beneath the surface and what is the end goal and, and trying to establish. Insure techs have you know very high expectations in terms of valuations, but not always able to articulate fully what the business is truly to become or what the true aim and goal of the business is. However, just see see large either multipliers or just large valuations associated with them. So for me, it's, it's, it's about there is, it has to be a level of um, truthfulness and honesty um, and authenticity about that, that process. Otherwise, it makes it very difficult for organisations or large corporates like ours you know, to, to go through the due diligence process and make those acquisitions. So, you know, that, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, but I also understand that, you know, that the, the role of an, an NGO tech is to maximise its valuation as well. So I understand the world we're in, but I personally am looking for that, that sort of authenticity and, that end, you know, real, a great articulation of the, um, of the end goal of the company. And you're all in the market as buyers. Um, do you think... And- but obviously, and still as in, um, in buying mode in 2023, do you think there will be as many buyers in the market this year, Alistair? I think I think there could even be more. Um, there's, there's no shortage of, of investment cash out there, whether it's private equity or, or other sources, and they will always be looking for interesting places to put it in the current economic environment. Some of those areas have shut down to them that they traditionally might have looked at, and hugely cash-generative businesses with repeat income of 80 90% every year you know, are, are very attractive to investors. So I suspect, I suspect there won't be any shortage of people looking to buy moving forward. Peter, do you agree? Do you see, see the pool of competitors swelling rather than dwindling I certainly I, I tend to agree with Alistair I think it is um, when times are tough investors look for safe havens and insurance broking is an incredibly safe haven I think Martin might have a slightly different view on the insurtech side where that bubble has undoubtedly burst a little bit at the minute I was going to pick your brains Martin obviously with, with SVB and talk like that th- there's questions in terms of you know will insurtech funding be as easy to access so do you see buyers growing or dwindling in your area well, I guess for organisations like mine that are looking to acquire in the area, there's potentially more good news in, in that respect because it does make some of these valuations more realistic. Um, I, you know, I think investment in insure techs will um, continue to level off to a degree. I'm, I'm not saying it's not an attractive place, but I just think those investors will be harder to come by, except for organisations like ours as well, that, you know, large corporates that, that are able to, you know, to fund those. Um, so it's a slightly different dynamic, but I do still see that there'll be, you know, acquisitions will still be happening during the the rest of the year um, and I still see it as a vibrant space. Mm, value, value to be had in the industry quite frankly. Yep. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Insurance Post podcast. I'd like to thank Martin, Peter and Alistair for joining us and sharing their insight on the role of data in shaping mergers and acquisitions. 
As always, also thanks to you for listening to the Insurance Post podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to Insurance Post and following us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Make sure you come back next week for a discussion on multi-occupancy buildings insurance. Until then, this is Emran Hughes signing off. The Insurance Post podcast is a product of InfoPro Digital. <laughs>